Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Refactoring My Christianity. On this episode, this one right here, the one that you're watching right now, crazy. I'm going to be talking to Drew the Catholic, who touch on his journey from becoming a or being a Protestant to then transitioning all the way to the Catholic Church, how there was an Anglican period in between there. We'll touch on his whole journey, what kind of kicked him out of Protestantism in general and it was a very fascinating conversation he's a wonderful person so check out listen to this podcast and uh, remember share this podcast with your friends and family let's get into this episode hey guys we're with drew from drew the catholic uh channel on youtube i stumbled across you when i was diving into uh catholic faith and all the interviews that you you've done and i, I was looking into your your history on how you got to the Catholic faith. And it was kind of really fascinating to see your, your journey. And you see this well with a lot of people that make the same kind of journey where you have this zeal for the Catholic faith with which I love to see me being a cradle Catholic. I'm still trying to discover that zeal, which I think I'm slowly building it. So uh, it, it's great to see. So Drew, thank you for being on. Let's just start with like, where were you like your faith journey? Where did you grow up at? I guess as a Protestant. Hey Adam, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. Um yeah, so I, I always describe my my growing up phase as as sort of loosely Protestant in that um my family, my my mom and dad had um what I would call like a faith when it was convenient. Like if something was wrong or something was really right, faith was present. And then when things were just normal, it was not really a big part of what we did. So like, we were going to church in phases. Sometimes we'd be going a lot, sometimes not at all. Um, but there was always sort of this, you know, just sort of assumed position of faith that, you know, God is real. Jesus has a lot to do with that. The specifics, I don't know, that's for the, that's for the pastor to figure out. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, there was definitely a real sense in which faith in a loose context was given to me, but it was almost just cultural um, in a lot of ways. I will say though, just because of circumstances in our town and in our family life, I ended up going to Catholic school as a non-Catholic for a while, which is in hindsight, a pretty pivotal part of my journey. Um, at the time, I didn't really have any intention of becoming Catholic. I was there second through eighth grade. And there was one period where I wanted to become Catholic, mostly just because I felt left out when we'd have to mm -hmm. go to mass. Um, probably less to do with like an actual full perception of the faith, mm -hmm. but it was really important in informing me to have a personal faith that was, um, that was more than just, a thing to pick up when it was convenient. Um, and then, yeah, probably more like high school, college is when I would say I had like a personal conversion and it became uh, really, really important that I, that I had faith in Jesus. So in high school and college, was that when you're more just into uh, just like a Protestant denomination of sorts? And where did that sort of start looking at the, the conversion from Protestantism to Catholicism and how, I know now being going from a cradle Catholic and not really understanding fully of the church and the richness of the church and now diving into it. And now I, I see it more when I'm more into it. Uh, the, a lot of the negative talking points, you could say the, the anti-Catholic points that come from uh, the, the Protestant areas, uh, which it's just sad to see in general that mm -hmm. they have this, that, that view some of them i'm not saying that mostly it's i feel like it's the more leaders but because i feel like i've been to protestant churches and a lot mm -hmm. of just the people that end up there are great wholesome people um which yeah. it's it's sad we have this division to say the least but where 
where was your journey? Because I'm sure if you dove in and you're more Protestant, it, it was probably a little uh, uh, kind of a tug of war between going mm-hmm. where you were and uh, to the Catholic faith. And it sounded like it was a long journey for you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it was important that it played out the way it did. In the, you know, when I first was really looking into becoming Catholic, I was like, oh, I should have just converted when I was a kid, even for the wrong reasons. And then this whole journey would have been done already, right? But in a lot of ways, I think it's really necessary that I never did become Catholic in Catholic school. And it wasn't even really something that was being pushed or, you know, thought about. Um, but basically in high school, I just started going to youth group. Um, it was a time when my family was going to church a lot, you know, on the heels of 2008 and, you know, the economic recession and all that. I think a lot of people were going to church that hadn't been in a long time just to kind of get something, you know. Um, but we started going a lot. I got really involved with a youth group at a really small church. Uh, and I think that was like the Evangelical Covenant Church. So they're like an evangelical non-denom denomination. So they are like <laughs> structured, but they kind of, are, if you just think non-denom, that's exactly what it felt like. At the same time, a bunch of my friends and I uh, that I met just in like, you know, just in classes, uh, started going to Young Life a lot, got really involved in that. And then I also was going to another youth group for... Um, just like a Bible church. So, you know, like typical non-denom kind of Baptist with a good website type of lean. Um, And so we didn't, yeah, we didn't really have like a particular denominational flavor. We were just like, oh yeah, the Bible and Jesus, and then like make the music cool so people want to come. And then Young Life was all about, let's be as relevant as possible so that we can reach people who are far from Christ. And then, you know, the hope is that, you know, they kind of trickle into a relationship with him and go deeper from there. So I was really involved in a lot of that stuff. And in a way it was socially convenient, but it did become really serious. All of us were, you know, pretty serious. Many of our friends had their, you know, their first experience with Jesus at a young life camp. And some became lifelong Christians from there. Others have kind of fallen away. But for me, I've always been like a really philosophical sort of deep person. Like I remember having my first moment of existential crisis at like five of like what existed when there was nothing, you know, like that first thought I was like five or six when I had that. So I've always kind of thought at that level. And when I started wrestling with these things, it was pretty clear to me that, you know, it couldn't just be a convenient thing. Like if you have faith in Christ, he kind of demands everything of you. And so that, you know, those sermons, those experiences in those churches really started to impact me, but not in a way that I really thought about denominations. If anything, I would have thought Catholicism was weird at that point because it did seem old. It seemed boring. Um, it seemed unnecessary and it seemed like they added too much, right? That was kind of my thought just taken for granted. Um, I will say it all changed going into college. Uh, senior year of high school, I had my first encounter with like a real atheist, like someone who was actually a bona fide atheist who was also pretty evangelistic about it, I guess I would say, like, which is kind of funny to think about. And that challenged me to go deeper than just, you know, living my faith personally, but to actually, you know, dive into what's, is this true? Is this even true? Is it not just true for me, but like actually objectively reality? Um, And so I got really into apologetics and through that learned a lot and could help a lot of friends, like understand that, Hey, you know, there's this, there's this tendency to be like, hey, biology class is teaching you about, you know, a secular perspective and uh, school is pretty secular and church is not. And those are just separate and they're supposed to stay separate. I was like, you know, there's good reasons to think that Christianity is actually true and that it's not combative towards science and it's not opposed to it or all these things. 
and so from that i was kind of discerning that maybe i should maybe i should study this so um i had already planned to attend one university and had like economics as my major which in hindsight is really funny if you know me because i'm not like a math guy at all and then i ended up going to grand canyon university and studying uh theology so that was i think what took me into like not just a deep personal faith but I wanted a worldview. I wanted to know that this was true, know that I could know that, and then know how to defend it and share it with others. Um, and I think that was an important step to take because for a lot of people, their faith is merely personal, right? We hear this all the time from, especially Protestant circles, have a have a personal relationship with Jesus. And while I don't think they would say that that's opposed to knowing that it's true or that it's objective reality for everybody, there's a lot of implicit sort of secularism in a lot of us, right? Where we don't want to enter that sparring arena with people. We just kind of leave them where they are and then, you know, pray that maybe it comes up in a way that it can be fruitful or not. Whereas I was seeking to be fully formed in the Christian tradition, know it was objectively true. And then how can I, how can I share that with other people? Um, which was really important i think for the journey to catholicism because once i was studying theology at some point in my major we got beyond just the basics of the bible you know and i've always kind of said it like your first year theology student thinks he knows nothing and is right your second year theology student usually thinks he knows everything and is dead wrong and then by like the, the end of the second year early third year you start to realize that oh this is way bigger than me this is you know something we've talked about for 2000 years there's all these different denominations that have all their different ideas. And I think an important part of my journey is I saw two or three different responses to that. And I, and I talk about this a lot, that a lot of people saw that, uh, I guess you could say, cognitive dissonance of the tradition of faith they grew up in versus all these other people who had good or bad ideas or a mix of both. And they just cloistered off to where they came from and didn't think too hard about it. Um, and usually they were really rude about it. Then there was people who went the other way and they were confronted with oh eastern orthodoxy oh you know catholic tradition anglicanism whatever it is and they just said well then who can really know and they kind of tapered off into i mean really just like nihilism in some ways or sort of implicit um relativism within christianity of like oh well we all have bits of the truth but no one has the full truth within christianity which is really just like relativism repackaged on the other side of you know a basic faith declaration right and I realized really quickly that I might be, I might think I'm kind of smart, but I'm not smart enough to get this right just on my own power. So I started this, this prayer of, you know, God, I need you to guide my theology. I need you to teach me like what I need to, what I need to know, where I need to be, what's really important to hold, what's like not as important. Like if there is first order doctrine and second order, like you need to line those up for me somehow. So then I started really getting into Anglicanism while at the same time attending like a charismatic evangelical church. But my, my spirituality personally was Anglican. I was doing the Book of Common Prayer. I was reading uh, Church Fathers. And this was on the heels of having taken a church history class that kind of blew all of this open for me. And I'm attending a charismatic church, which kind of was, I guess, narratively appropriate in that it was, you know, about surrender to the Holy Spirit, not having everything figured out, just letting God move in your life. And that was, yeah, I guess that kind of sets the stage for my conversion, if that makes sense. So you can see all the pieces there, like this desire to know objective truth, this sort of, I guess, encounter with my own finiteness that I that I can't be the one to figure it out. And I'm certainly not going to be the one to dictate what it is perfectly. And then that that kind of sets the stage for, I think, what becomes my conversion. 
So what was it like being going to, say, an Anglican church and then also a charismatic church at the same time? Was that kind of jarring for you or Mm. was it kind of you being guided to gently work your way uh, to Catholicism, which maybe that was how he was leading you into the church as a whole of kind of guiding you slowly into it because you were doing something you weren't being catholic which is always not a good thing in protestant circles but you were doing something a little bit more than just what you see in some the reformed circles yeah in in a way i i kind of saw them both as counterbalances to the excess of what i was seeing at large in my you know in my college and in the, just like the evangelical Christian world in general, for me, uh, Anglicanism was a way and what I saw, what I thought was in Anglicanism, but now I'm realizing is what Anglicanism was holding. That was really just a part of the broader Catholic tradition. Um, it really grounded, it really grounded people. I mean, I think when you have tradition, when you have structured prayer, when you have, you know, like um like the book of common prayer for instance is really in i i don't want to overgeneralize but in some ways it's like the anglican version of liturgy of the hours right there's there's a lot of similarities between those texts uh, whereas liturgy of the hours was largely for clergy at the time the book of common prayer said that should be for everybody and that's kind of their you know their big thing that they that they're really proud of and i mean now everyone just prays liturgy of the hours if they want to right but there's there's this um there's this wisdom in having fixed hours of prayer and having prayers that have thousands of years behind them and, and having this structure to your life to where you're constantly putting yourself in this place of encountering God um, with the right words, even if your heart isn't right in that moment. Right. Um, and then having just, just some years behind it. So that was really good. Cause what I was starting to sense is that, and and now this is just, really been vindicated in so many different ways. I was starting to sense that evangelicalism was falling short, mostly in that it was really focused on this cult of personality. You know, like just while I was in college, one of the churches that I started attending was Mars Hill. So that was Mark Driscoll's church. And as soon as I started attending it, I got this uncomfortable feeling that like, this is the wrong focus. Like we're focused way too much on this guy. Um, and then sure enough, a couple months into it, whole thing blows up and the church falls apart. My local, like local plant of the Mars Hill church is, um, is now a independent, you know, Bible church in Phoenix, which is pretty cool to see how they pivoted and saved that. But I mean, you're, you're talking one misstep and an entire organization with like 25 church plants disappears overnight and hundreds of people's families are thrust into this scandal and impacted by it. Right. And like, you know, we have, we have our scandals and we have our wounds too. The thing that's different about Catholicism is, you know, as, as you can look through history, even the Pope can be thrust into crazy scandal and it's tough to live through, but the church doesn't just blow up and cease to exist overnight. Somehow radically and miraculously she lives through it. And, but I was starting to see this like cult of personality and, and then all of the people who, really brought evangelicalism into existence almost like one by one started falling into scandal. And so I was like, we need something to root us something with depth. And like, that's where the interest in historical Christianity came from. But at the same time, I saw the danger of someone being so rigidly intellectual and thinking that their one little narrow path was correct, that they excluded everyone else. That's where the charismatic bend kind of came in. Cause it was just the humility to say, you know, come Holy spirit, God guide me. I don't, I don't know how to figure this out. 
and what's really funny is like now I realize that that is just like that is just the wisdom of Catholicity is we have the wisdom of the tradition and the security of you know the Holy Spirit's protection of the church and like when you look at the saints and the religious orders and all of these different things that are in the life of the church we have that that mystical encounter um, where we're actually where you know experiencing union with God and he's forming us and leading us and guiding us and shaping us. And so all of the things my heart was yearning for, I was thinking, Oh, I have to get a little bit from this charismatic church and a little bit from being Anglican and, you know, kind of double dip. And then, then I won't be as prone to these excesses of like falling into a cult of personality or becoming like an ivory tower. And now it's kind of like, well, all of those things are really just, that's just Catholicity. So, um, I don't even know if that answers your original question, but <laughs> it's okay. I, I like these conversations where we go uh, just mm. in depth into your journey and takes it, the conversation goes where it will go. Um, mm -hmm. So what was, how did it feel different for you um, going from say a Protestant church where you're praying and sometimes you like, you feel like you fail when you don't feel something right mm. like you don't feel like the the spirit enter you or you're you're not feeling it on a certain day versus say now and you're you're in this anglican church where they it sounds like they're a little bit more rigid or more consistent with their traditions of praying and that's something that i've experienced now with uh, coming back to the faith for the few a few years now of um the fact that you're consistently working at it, even when, you know, mm -hmm. we are all wretched individuals, to say mm -hmm. the least, we are just, but you're still coming back to prayer consistently because as, as people, we are kind of built with tradition and that being a, kind of a comfort for us mm -hmm. to, to constantly go back and not rely on our own intuition and our own feeling, but relying on God being there every time we are praying so what was right. that like for you yeah i mean it was um it was really life-giving because i think there's this temptation and there's this sort of implicit view that is true in the lives of many evangelicals that it's only good if it's like spontaneously pouring out from your heart and there's a desire to con to be holy enough that that's constantly happening but everyone's just kind of like man I'm not spontaneously desiring to read the Bible enough, but I don't want to be, you know, legalistic about it. Um, and that, like, I think what that creates is, and this is going to sound odd because we have our own catechetical problems. It creates a really large issue of catechesis because like one of the things I started to realize really is from a book from uh, James K.A. Smith, who's a Protestant scholar who is in a more historical, you know, purview with his view of things. He has this book called You Are What You Love. And his whole thesis is that that we are human beings who love first. You know, a lot of times we think that it might be um, the mind first. And while it's true that, you know, like reason is ahead of volition and will, well, well love is ahead of all of those. And that was kind of his thesis that, and, and love is formed by what we do most. And then what what we do most forms what we love. And then love determines what we do. And it becomes this sort of cyclical formation and, he pointed out that our, our culture has really counterformed us to be contrary to the gospel in lots of ways. And like he has this whole chapter like comparing uh, shopping malls to, to worship temples where the icons are the, the fashion models and the altar is the cash register. And like really like just painting the picture that secularism has its own altars, has its own liturgies, and most of us aren't even aware of it, right? And so when we've just said, let's be relevant to that in our church experience, we're implicitly trying to co-opt the worship of secularism, right? And it just doesn't work. And instead, what he proposes is is liturgy, because 
if you if you order your steps around and these guardrails of liturgy, these constant practices, they actually end up forming you. And so it's not just dead religion. It actually ends up teaching you the way that you're supposed to be. And so, if, you know, if you're praying the Our Father, even when you started, if, you're, if your heart's not in it, at some point, it's actually tugging your heart closer to where it's supposed to be, which is entering into that prayer. And then we know from there, then the goal is that you go beyond just the rote words of the Our Father into this, you know, into this contemplative encounter with the living triune God. And, and that becomes the heart of mental prayer, which, you know, we know the saints all talk about. So I was starting to see these puzzle pieces come together. Um, and it was just so life-giving because I, I, I mean, you know, it's like you've already said, I, I am flippant. I am inconsistent. Um, usually the spontaneous part of me is the most wretched part of me. Like I, I was like, man, I can't just wake up one day and have every word out of my mouth be perfect. You know, I needed training wheels. And I think that Anglicanism, that more historical approach to prayer, the disciplines, they're like the training wheels of the spiritual life. There's a reason humans have routine, right? There's a reason that we teach our kids to like brush their teeth every night, go to bed at a good time, eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. These things become the very rule by which you can grow, you know, like rule meaning trellis, like the whole image of a rule is that there's a stable thing the vine can naturally grow around. Um, and I, I really just started to see that. And it was an antidote to a, the excesses of evangelicalism, which usually are sexual sin or greed or anger and like some sort of, it's all about really power internally. Um, and, and the other thing it counteracted was, I mean, just the deep fundamental lack of a biblical worldview that I saw in most of my brothers and sisters that I was going to church with. I, and that was what, you know, four years of, of theological study, I just had this yearning of like, if people only knew like how rich the scriptures were and how beautiful and, and like when you enter into them and allow yourself to be formed by them, the whole world opens up and it makes sense and you can actually live in it as a Christian. And most people, it was still this compartmentalized thing they did to kind of make themselves feel okay and put the existential crisis at bay for a little bit they hadn't been formed with a with a worldview steeped in in scripture and then ultimately when you become catholic it's it's more than just scripture alone it's steeped in the entire life of the church which you know from the apostolic deposit is just the life of jesus christ passed on to us so yeah that was the stepping stone i think of like of realizing this world is so much bigger than just reading the Bible and memorizing the fundamental points and like holding to them in some sort of mental furniture fashion. Like if I get the mental furniture, right, I believe in the right way, then I go to heaven. Right. It, it transforms the whole reality of faith from being a, a, a test that I have to pass about dogmas and about, you know, knowing enough scripture to this lived reality in which I'm, I'm in union with Jesus. And that, that only became clear to me, I guess, when I started participating in those broader traditions that, that ultimately are just, are just Catholic. So. Yeah. So <laughs> it's really just, it's hard to just describe it, just the beauty of it all. Cause uh, mm. I've been now, I, being a cradle Catholic and not understanding all the nuances of the faith and coming back to it. And now understanding some of the beauty of, I've been starting to say the rosary for a little while now and just consistently doing that and seeing the, the fruits of it, even when it, you don't want to do it there. Hmm. I feel like there's some part, the fact that what I feel 
sorry, I'm just trying to verbal process something. Oh, sometimes good. my brain yeah. gets gets all <laughs> jumbled up. But pardon me, I don't want to assume what God sees. But if he's seeing somebody that's doing like praying to him, going through the tradition and trying earnestly to pray, even in the the times when they, we sincerely don't want to do it, where you're you're struggling mm-hmm. and you give that up to him. I can only imagine that's probably a, a good thing, and it's not you're just coming to him when you feel like you want to come to him. You're coming to him on his time, which is all mm-hmm. the time, essentially. And I think that's the beauty of a lot of these different things that you see from the the, the church as a whole. So now, mm. how do you go from Anglican? You're going to both of these churches. So what mm-hmm. does that process look like of now? entering do you enter immediately into the church what, what was that growing process l- l- like <laughs> no certainly not i think so i think the first so senior year of college as i was you know i think it was like saturday evenings i would attend this anglican church that one of my professors started it was a church plant so it was teeny tiny but it was really enriching in all those ways i mentioned sundays i'd go to that charismatic church but there was like this fall day and I lived in Phoenix, so like fall means something very different there. It's just starting to get a little bit more bearable in terms of Eight, temperature. 80 degrees yeah. in a yeah, t-shirt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I didn't have to just like be inside all the time. I could actually go out. I, but I was walking uh, just around campus, just got food, went back to my apartment, just like reflecting on all these things. And because I, you know, I had had two experiences at churches where I'd just been burned really badly and then was in this, you know, this other, this new kind of dual church experience. But as I was reflecting on the beauty of like the prayer I was entering to with the book of common prayer, I just kind of had this tug in my heart of like, Oh, I'm really just, I just inst- like I had this desire to be Catholic and it was like, Oh, I, I, I just explained it away. I was like, I think this is just like, I'm entering into things that kind of remind me of my experience at Catholic school. And like, I have sweet, good memories from that. I actually had a really good Catholic experience, Catholic school experience as a kid, which I know is some people have the opposite, but, and I was like, okay, well that's just nostalgia, whatever. Um, and so then I just kind of carried on. The one thing I didn't stop doing though, as I graduated was, uh, being curious about church history and where all the stuff I had discovered was coming from. Cause I mean, I took one church history class and then we had to cover 2000 years of every Christian tradition. So it, we really didn't get to focus in on the church fathers of the early church nearly as much as I would have liked. And I even discovered that the textbook I had was, was decent. It was pretty good. But it was, I mean, you know, you're spanning that much history in one semester. It just wasn't enough. So I started kind of poking around and seeing more of that stuff. And I just really fell in love with the way the fathers spoke. Because what I saw was someone um, way more serious about Jesus than I was, right? Like you read the fathers and they're all at once the most zealous defenders of the faith. Like they're willing to throw hands at anyone who's a heretic, right? Um in love, but, but like <laughs> firmly, like they're not trying to dance nice around it. Slap. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, they, th- because, you know, I, I, uh, this line from, um, the letter of Clement always strikes me. He says, be contentious and zealous brethren for the things which lead to salvation. And I'm like, that attitude is so great. Cause like, that's like a concerned father, right? Like if someone was trying to take advantage of my family, I would be contentious. I would be willing to fight for them. I'd be very zealous about that cause. And that actually is love for my family, right? So of course, the the church fathers, as we call them, feel that way about their flock, about the church, right? And there's that's virtuous. It's um, 
it's good to feel that way. So that was attracting me because I was like, these people take Christianity way more seriously than almost anyone I've ever met probably. And they all like many of them died for it, you know, and we hear stories about missionaries and all sorts of Christian traditions dying for their faith. And they're always so encouraging. But what I realized is these people were like looking for that almost like almost to the point of seeking it out, you know, as a crown. Um, And just, it kind of struck me because, you know, like I had shared this, this whole journey got really serious when I realized that my whole worldview needed to be biblical. My whole worldview needed to be Christian. My, my convictions needed to be rooted that this is ontologically true. And if that was the case, I should be just as willing to thrust myself into the arena and be burned alive as Polycarp, right? Like if I'm really convinced that, that, you know, Jesus Christ beat death by death, that there's a resurrection, that being united to him in the church is the, is the way to salvation, then death should have no sting for me. And I, I should be that convinced of that, you know? So there was that sort of zeal, but then also just the wisdom, the theology, the beauty, and it challenged my rigid, you know, scientific Western modernist mind in so many ways. Um, so that was sort of happening in the background of all this. And as I was reading that, I became more and more attracted to it. And then I started to see ancient Christianity just on YouTube. I would like see, you know, mass or I would see like an Orthodox divine liturgy. And then I would go to my charismatic service on Sunday and just find myself utterly disappointed because the beauty wasn't there. Um, all of that was happening as I'm like in this internship program at this church, this charismatic church I'm going to. And I wasn't at the point where I accepted Catholic dogmas. There was a lot I didn't agree with stuff. I vehemently opposed even. Um, so what were those stumbling blocks that, that you were yeah. wrestling with? It's like the classic ones, right? Like I, I would yeah. say I still wasn't sure about the Eucharist. I liked the idea of communion being the center as a, like a symbol or as even, even as like a spiritual encounter in some real way, but not, necessarily transubstantiation. So I wasn't fully on board there, though I was softening to that a lot. Like I was pretty sure that like, oh, we should just be doing communion every Sunday. But the big ones were Mary. Um, mm. I had some questions about the intercession of the saints. I was really uncomfortable with the language around Mary, especially in Catholicism and, and in Orthodoxy. It's elevated as well. But like, I, I remember looking up what the Catholics believe about Mary and seeing that as recently as the 50s, they declared a new dogma. And I was like, nope, you know, didn't look <laughs> into it any further for a while. And then the papacy was a big one. Like, you know, to any evangelical, that is just the most offensive thing you could hear that some dude has authority over you and he can say something and you have to believe it, you know, because to me, it's all about like, well, what about scripture? Like my pastor's wrong all the time, you know? So I had a lot of those classic convictions and really just not enough research to have determined if my positions against Catholicism were good or bad. Uh, but I certainly didn't think that Catholics weren't Christian. I think that's worth clarifying. Like, I, I believe that Catholics were Christian. And I didn't believe it in the way that, like, oh, some Catholics will be in heaven and will be surprised to know that. I was like, no, if you're a good Catholic, like, you know Jesus. Like, that is, you know, just as valid, I would have said then, as me over here knowing Jesus. And I would have been totally okay with, like, well, there's bad Catholics and there's bad evangelicals. And, that you know, don't judge the the whole flock by the, you know, by the black sheep. Uh, but I just wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought that some things that Catholics said essential, were essential. I wouldn't have thought they were essential and I would have disagreed that they were even true. Right. Um, so that was kind of, I guess, where I was standing with that, but I was immensely drawn to the beauty. And I thought that most evangelicals needed to become more Catholic in that we needed to be okay with liturgy. We needed to relearn our ancient roots. We needed to relearn all of those, you know, 
things that the church fathers had passed on probably start with just even knowing who they are. And so, yeah, that was kind of my, I guess that's how my days were spent in this internship program. We're, you know, learning whatever they're teaching us in this program. Um, and I, I call it an internship program because I think that makes more sense of what it was for me, but it was called a discipleship training school. And you had to go through that at this church to be able to serve in this church in like a pastoral way. Cause I had a theology degree. So for, for a lot of you know places I could have just applied, been accepted in the role and started working there. This church didn't really care if you had a degree or not. They wanted you to be trained in their thing. So I was quite, kind of going through it to start serving in the church. And then as a part of it, you're serving in, you know, a ministry they assign you and all that. But on my own, I'm reading the books that they want us to read and like church history. And I'm reading, um, things about, you know, like, yeah, liturgical prayer and contemplative prayer and, and, uh, stuff like that kind of all at the same time. Um, and I, I think it, that started to draw me and fill me up more than the charismatic experiences at this church, which were pretty profound. Like I was having a lot of healing, a lot of really crazy encounters with the Holy spirit that probably would make a lot of Catholics uncomfortable with like holy laughter and like people speaking words over me that even looking back on, I'm like, that was a hundred percent true. Like, how do they know that? So I was having a lot of crazy experiences, but all of this ancient stuff was like way more appealing to me. And I was trying to discern what that was. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that that was probably a big a tug between church history because you know when you start diving into like what ancient um like the apostolic uh, fathers were talking about and it, it sort of coincides with what the church ha has been saying for a while and you can see where mm -hmm. it develops over time and I'm sure that was probably um a big thing that you were wrestling with and internally what how did you kind of um combat that those two thoughts of like oh i'm seeing a lot of good things that are happening at this evangelical church but mm -hmm. i just can't not see what i'm reading or understand what right. i'm reading with the church fathers yeah well in one sense i was i was still not fully reading the fathers on their own right i was still kind of reading them through the lens of protestants mm. so there were things i hadn't seen yet like i hadn't seen ignatius of antioch on the eucharist yet I hadn't seen mm. some of the early sources on the papacy or the Marian dogmas um, or even just the necessity of a bishop or anything like that. So I, I had been still a little bit hidden from that just by the sources I was going to because I was mostly encountering them in terms of like things Protestants would agree about, like the divinity of Christ, their zealousness for prayer, things like that. The other thing that's really important to mention is I really, and I still believe this, I really was committed to the idea of church unity. A lot of my mentors at the time, um, we're working in this field of, you know, like John 17 should be the heartbeat of, of, you know, this moment in the, in the, the, what they called like the greater church, you know, like across denominational lines, that's sort of a Protestant vision of how the church works. Um, and they were really committed to that. I was too. And the church I was in was like, not really concerned with that, but was okay with it. I really saw that as being my ministry of like, what can we learn from each other? How can we all come together? And I just knew just from scripture, it was so clear to me that Jesus Christ wanted visible unity in his church. I mean, it's his, and it's in a way in John 17, it was like his dying wish. So this was all kind of becoming the focal point of my ministry. And what I was starting to see myself as is someone whose job it was, was to make evangelicals like reclaim the, the history of the church and like learn from 
what I at the time was just calling the spiritual disciplines, which is like more ancient patterns of prayer and like liturgical prayer, even in like their Sunday services. Right. I was starting to see that maybe this is like what God's calling me to do is, is offer these as like tokens and, and guidelines for our current expressions of church so that we can be more deeply rooted and more emotionally healthy and more connected to like, you know, the, the whole history of Christianity. So I was trying to synthesize it all in a way, I guess, but I hadn't encountered, I guess, the full weight of the fathers. And that's, that's really what the, uh, the turning point was, was when that happened. And I, I actually, it's funny. I had a book, uh, it's, um, the William Jurgen's faith of the fathers, three book set. And it's just selective quotes. And the whole book is organized. It's just selectively quoting parts that are like good source points for proving Catholicism. And then the intention is that you go to the whole document and read it. I got into the thrift store, opened it, read a couple lines, was immediately scandalized, shut it, and put it <laughs> away for quite a while. Um, Do you remember what exactly made you turn away from it? Like what? I think it was what? something about the Eucharist. And it wasn't that I was like, no, that can't be right. It was just that I was like... I'm not in a place where I can go down that mm. road right now and try to go find this and verify why it's right or wrong or whatever. Like I have too much going on. That's just a can of worms. A lot of good is kind of like, you know, a lot of good is happening here. I'm, you know, in a place where maybe I can enrich people with some of these things I'm experiencing and, um, and like bring everyone together. And like, that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to become this like ivory tower scholar who's stuck in this. Right. Um, at the same time, as soon as like all that was happening, in this internship program, this is like the pivotal story of like kind of where the, the switch flipped in some ways that ruined me forever being evangelical. But we had to do these presentations on revival, you know, charismatic church. They're all about like the tent revival and people getting slain in the spirit. And like, that's what the church needs is just like revival. And in some ways they're right. Right. I would even say that as a Catholic, but maybe not with the same methods. So they had to do you, these presentations on. I don't mean that, to interrupt, but yeah, yeah. do you mind explaining to me? Cause I've heard this term before, but I don't, I, what does slaying in the spirit actually mean? <laughs> um, so in like Pentecostal or charismatic circles, some people have this experience where the Holy spirit sort of hits them like a freight train mm. and they literally just fall over. Okay. And, um, Usually for the people that encounter it, it's like intense feelings of consolation, um, intense feelings of like inner healing or just mm -hmm. encounter or whatever it is. Um, as a Catholic, I definitely think it happens. I don't know that I would advocate for like seeking to have it happen every Sunday. You know, like I think God does extraordinary things to bring us into ordinary obedience. Um, and Catholicism in, in many ways is like way more charismatic than, than the charismatic movements of evangelicalism, because like we believe a miracle is happening every Sunday. If you look at our saints, like some of them levitated, bilocated, whatever. It's like we have all of mm -hmm. that within our tradition. But I think there's something healthier about the, the really crazy encounters leading you into ordinary obedience. You know, that was the whole point of the signs and plagues in Egypt was so that God could say, I'm God. These gods are not follow me and then they enter into an ordinary covenant with him right um so anyways yeah it's sort of that intense it's, it's like essentially the best way to describe it is like someone's praying asking for the holy spirit to move and like a like a like a freight train hits them and flattens them and they literally fall over sometimes unconscious um and in some churches this happens so regularly that they have a thing called a courtesy blanket that they like put over the person <laughs> to keep them warm um, I never had that happen to me, but I had other things that were really intense and visceral in terms of my like 
I guess you could say charismatic experiences. Oh, okay. So thanks for that explanation. Cause I always heard that mm-hmm. term and I was like, what, what is that? What is that? Yeah, it's weird. It's really weird. You can look it up on YouTube, like being slain in the spirit. Some people that are a little more radical will even have like, like the pastor will be like doing this mm-hmm. and like a whole wave of people falls and you know, then they do it and the whole wave over there of people falls. I think a lot of that stuff's probably fake to be honest, but the, uh, there's video of what it looks like when someone's slain in the spirit. So it's, it's super strange. It's very uncomfortable to be around mm-hmm. <laughs> personally. So, so let's get back to what was like the, the main, the, the sort of point of, you wanting to now convert like you're you're struggling with this tug of war and you're saying you, mm. you reached this this one point which you're about to get into and i rudely interrupted <laughs> oh no no you're fine yeah so we were having these presentations on revivalists and they had a list we could pick from and there was like you know like john wimber from the vineyard movement and there was john wesley from you know like the methodist movement and then francis of assisi was on there and i'm like church history that's my boy and I knew that Francis of Assisi was very Catholic. So I did anything a good former theology student would do is I, I gave a very historically accurate presentation on him. And as soon as my presentation ended, you know, there's always Q&A because like the whole point of this internship is that people are like doing these presentations and learning from each other and we all grow together. And, you know, whatever. Hands shoot up. First, first question, this girl looks at me. She goes, why do Catholics pray to saints and worship them? And I'm like, uh, well, that wasn't a part of my presentation, but I had recently encountered a father, Mike Schmidt's video where he explained it as like, well, why do and I looked at her? I'm like, well, why do you ask me to pray for you? And she just looked at me. And so then like <laughs> the rest of that Q and a was just people asking me to defend Catholic dogma, which I did <laughs> apparently so well that I learned later. One of these, one of these people went home to their husband and was like, are we supposed to pray to saints? And he was like, no, no, that's crazy. You know, but like, (laughs) here I am like defending something I don't even believe being asked to. And I got in a lot of trouble for even giving the presentation. And I was like, the guy, the guy kind of running the school told me, he's like, well, I just think that you're wrong. And I'm like, okay, well then like, you know, cause he didn't think Catholics were even Christians. I was like, okay, if Catholics aren't Christians, like make your defense from the, from the scriptures. And I was trying to be really amicable Mm -hmm. and he got really mad. And, uh, I basically left the school and in, in one way was kind of, it, they were like, yes, leave. And in another way I was like, I want to leave. So it was mm-hmm. kind of mutual, I guess. And at that moment I was just like, I can't be in an evangelical church ever again. I just can't be like what happened was so closed off to things that are like actual moves of God and actual history. And, and the very thing that was the antidote to it that I had discovered, they were just completely unwilling to listen to. So at that moment, I was like, I'm Anglican now. And then um, around that time, just that was a sever from that community. I still have a lot of good friends who are connected to it, people I talk to and I love. But I, the, for the most part, I just couldn't stomach going there. Um, I felt like I had been like betrayed. And there was a lot of like, yeah, there was just a lot of bad, bad feeling, a lot of bad um, discussion. The way that my presentation was framed was, I would say inaccurate and people have vindicated me on that. That like, Oh no. Yeah. You weren't doing anything like nefarious, but the way it was framed to leadership and stuff was like, Oh, this guy's trouble. got to get him out of here. And I like really like, honestly, like I think I would accurately call some of what happened there, like spiritual abuse of authority, which is really severe to go through and like depressing to live through. But imagine, yeah, because of that, I ended up moving um, 
which in a lot of ways was a really good decision. And I moved to a much smaller town close to family. And there was this lovely Anglican church with all these people who were like speaking my language. So I started going there, but it just, that, all that whole experience kind of ruined me for evangelicalism. And not just because it was personally difficult, but the flavor of it, I was like, wait, there is something in this structure that is not open to where God is leading me. So it just, you know, even in just like a theological way, I was just like, I, I need something deeper. And as I was attending this Anglican church, it was really healing, really good community. And that's when I would like finally opened that book again. It was like, okay, mm-hmm. now I have time. I'm not in a leadership position. I'm not serving. I'm working some, you know, kind of dead end job at the gondola at the ski resort until I get established here. Now is the time to like read all of this stuff and just be ministered to by it. And I went, I mean, it was almost like another two, three years of self-induced schooling. I just voraciously tore through the fathers and just everything I could get my hands on church history wise. Um, Around this time, I also met my wife and like, I was ready to become Catholic. Like before I met her, met her and she was on her own journey, kind of deepening her roots from evangelicalism by reading the Jewish roots of the faith. And I was like, wait, here's the church fathers. And so then as we got married, we kind of got to go on that final journey together. But yeah, it was, that's what really did it. Like I kind of needed that last and third attempt to, to, to show me that like, Hey, God might be calling you to something, but it's, it's not to be an evangelical pastor. Um, and for a while I was like, Oh, maybe it's an Anglican priest. But really like my little, my little layover in Anglicanism, I was <laughs> Anglican for three years officially. Um, and maybe a little less than three years. I was yeah, you know, like maybe like two and a half. And, uh, it was basically just the stopover that gave me the space with which to like actually go on that deep dive with the church fathers and start answering all my questions. And like one by one, everything just kind of crumbled that I had against Catholicism. I mean, I'd be like, okay, well I had to defend the intercession of the saints. And actually as I was defending it, it made quite a bit of sense to me. Let's look into it. Objection crumbled. Okay surely Mary cannot be the queen of heaven. There's no way. And then you mm-hmm. look into the Jewish roots of the faith and, Oh, who's the mother or who's the queen of Israel. It's never the wife of the King. It's his the mother, mother. objection mm-hmm. crumbled, you know? And so like, eventually I just started going, okay, Catholics teach this thing that I just could not get behind, but they've been right every time. So somehow they're going to be right. Aren't they? And then sure enough, I'd look into it. And I was just kind of like, oh, come on. (laughs) Uh, So three years of that and just like healing from some of those wounds um, while I'm like looking into this. And then my my wife comes on this journey with me and she's really intellectual like I am in many ways and started seeing some of the same stuff. And um, I would be researching something and talk it through with her and she'd be like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. And then it kind of just perpetuated from there. So it's kind of funny because that was like the flashpoint. That presentation was the flashpoint that kind of blew everything up and gave me the freedom to, I think, look into it and not have anything else in the way. But then from there, it was like this slow burn of just like one by one objections melting away. So all in all, like timeline wise, I think from like the first moment I was like, oh, maybe there's something here to like actually coming to the church. It was like almost six, six and a half years. Wow. Sounds like it was a, a gentle guiding with a little bit yeah. of a boot in the middle, but a, a yeah. gentle guiding yep. to to where you ended up, which is just beautiful. And 
what, yeah. during that process, because I know you mentioned going to or looking at mass or Catholic mass and Orthodox mass. What was there? Because uh, I know I've heard a lot of Protestants where they end up jumping to uh, Orthodoxy instead mm-hmm. of becoming Catholic, and I, it sounds like a lot of it is because maybe it's you know they're raised with a lot of anti-Catholic, so they're mm-hmm. going they're going to be Orthodox. They're not going to be these Catholic things, which are, are, are mm-hmm. a whole separate thing for some people. Was that was that in your mind of becoming Orthodox, or because of absolutely, yeah, absolutely, I would have <laughs> in that phase. I was looking at Orthodoxy and I fell in love with the East and it was just so mystic, which was like this perfect antidote to my like rigid Western mind. And the divine liturgies were beautiful. I had never attended one, um, but I I really didn't have an opportunity to, but I just, I loved the idea of Orthodoxy. And I was like, okay, I I have to settle the question of the papacy though. Like I can't Mm -hmm. enter one. I have to settle it. I have to know. I have to come to a resolution here. And like, I really need to like do the deep dive. Like if there is a deep dive to like become an expert on in that three year, like window of like just diving deep, that's the, that's the issue. Cause in a way I kind of realized it was in a way the silver bullet. Like if the papacy was verified by history and tradition and the witness of the fathers, even by just a sliver of a hair enough to think that it's true, then, then the Moriah dogmas, no sweat. The other ecumenical councils, obvious right and if Mm -hmm. it's if it's like just spurious enough to think that the orthodox have a leg up even by a hair then yeah orthodoxy is the place to go but like i didn't want to get that wrong Mm -hmm. and i was reading like the craziest most obscure stuff like i was even like i was researching like parallel topics to like give me cultural context in the papacy of like oh what would they have thought about you know like words like you know, premier inter pares, first among equals, like what cultural weight would that have carried? Like I was really trying to get technical with it um, and, and reading, you know, like Edward Skansky has the Orthodox and the papacy book. I, that was like, like the magnum opus that I viewed it through and like stole all his sources and would jump to those and just try to get the whole like scope of it in my head. But that whole time I was like, oh man, I really hope the Orthodox are right. Cause what I realized is like, like I said, I felt like my calling in a way was all these things I was discovering to bring my evangelical friends into them. Well, now that was no longer just like, Hey, change your evangelical flavor to look a little more historical. Now it was, I'm going to bring you all with me. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. orthodoxy, that would have been so much easier to do because it'd have been like, Hey, look at this dope history. Look at all this wonderful prayer and beauty. You can have all of that with no Pope. It's essentially similar to your ecclesial structure. You know, the cell would have been so much easier. Um, But unfortunately I did the research and I just kept, looking into it and i'm like it's not like this landslide but it's like Mm -hmm. ever so slightly the papacy comes out on top and oh it just you know now i'm like not even mentally cognizant of all the different arguments and things i went through like i i kind of settled it and then you know how it is if you're not fresh on that topic Mm -hmm. you lose a lot of it but it was it was sort of obsessive for a while i was like okay this is what it all comes down to it had narrowed down to that topic so it sounds like uh, one of the, the big uh, sticking points for a lot of Protestants. I know yeah. uh, one of the uh, – what's his name? Cameron Bertuzzi from Capturing mm-hmm. Christianity. That was like one of the one of the main points of – like he, he he did an analytical mindset where he was doing an Excel sheet and all the different probabilities. Yeah, the Bayesian analysis on yeah, it. Yeah, that's – yep. That was that <laughs> section where it was the, the papal mm-hmm. infallibility, that whole – 
issue was kind of like his his point. Even though he was saying that if it came to be not true, it was still a high probability or higher probability that it would be the Catholic Church being the the, the true church. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just really fascinating because I, I had an interview recently uh, where I was talking about it feels like the reason – and uh, you kind of brought it up, the, the reason that Protestants have a, uh, sometimes an issue with the church as a whole, at least American uh, Protestants, is because I think we've been raised with this idea of uh, we don't like bureaucracy. We don't mm-hmm. want people telling us what to do when it comes to the government. We we have these individual rights and values. And then you combine that now, like going to the Catholic church and it is this larger organization and bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. It's probably very difficult for them to separate the two, their, their values when it comes to a nation versus the values when it comes to a church that they're a part of. Mm-hmm. And that may be one of the driving factors of what, what makes it so difficult. And mm-hmm. is that, is that sort of maybe is that kind of your mindset with what you're doing now on YouTube is, are you trying to bring say your Protestant friends to, to a better, under, maybe not converting, but maybe a better understanding of the Catholic church as a whole. Yeah. I, th- I think in many ways it is like, like, so I had mentioned earlier that my heart in college was all about church unity and it still is, you know, like um, one of the things that the Catholic church is clear on is that they, they are separated brethren. They, their baptism, you know, um, Unitatis Redentigatio from the Second Vatican Council says that they belong to us because their baptism is properly ours. Like it belongs to the church. Uh, it belongs to the church. So they, they, they are brothers by baptism, um, so long as it's, you know, one of the Protestant sects where their baptism is valid, right? And that means they, they have the sacrament of initiation, but they're, they're, they're separated by, these longstanding wounds is what a lot of those working in ecumenism talk about the, the reality as is it's not, um, it's not as simple as like, they're a completely separate entity. It's that they properly belong to us and it's, and it should be our duty to try and foster those relationships and, and mutual understanding to bring them into the fullness of unity and into everything Jesus has for them, which is, you know, visible, uh, integration with the Catholic church. And I think, I think putting it that way can almost sound like too too hoity-toity ecumenical, but like what what it what it really is is back to the fathers. One of the earliest disputes in the church was not one of the earliest, but like a very early dispute was the the what do we do with people that are a part of a heretical sect that were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And there were people who said we got to rebaptize them, but the the view that won out was that no their baptism is valid because if they were validly baptized like just the hereditary nature of baptism the genealogy of it right they belong to the church and so it's kind of the prodigal son story of like if you're catholic you're the son that's still in the house and if you're protestant you're the prodigal son you belong in the house but you you've kind of squandered your inheritance money it's time to come home and the the father's going to run after you with his sandals flopping like mad to welcome you for the for the feast of the banquet you know um and i think like that the whole parable of the lost you know the lost son uh, the parable of the prodigal son can in many ways even embody the attitudes we have like protestants feel like oh i could never reintegrate with that and maybe they don't feel like they're eating pig slop but but (laughs) for catholics we can be like a little bit resentful of like well 
what do you mean they're like a part of us? It's like, well, they they belong to the family by virtue of baptism and and their shared proclamation of Christ. They hold the scriptures tightly. We should we should overplay those links and use them um, to build relationships and and yeah, mm-hmm. welcome people home because, um, you know, and I think that's there. I mean, just to be just to be completely pragmatic, there is only one ecclesiology where we could have visible unity in the church, and it's Catholic ecclesiology. So even if you were just a pure pragmatist, that's the only way to to make it work. But more than that, that's like the whole. That's you know, that's on Jesus's heart, and I think for me, it's it's really something I think about a lot because. There's so many misconceptions about Catholicism. I think that's the big place to start is most Protestants hate what they think Catholicism is, but they don't hate what it actually is because they don't know what it actually is. You know, um, their pastor's pastor's pastor way down the line had some misconception, some lie, some historical thing that they overplayed or whatever it is. And there's all this anti-Catholic bias that comes from that. So even just clearing, clearing that stuff up goes a long way. But then I think ultimately, for me, like what it what it is, is an invitation of Jesus has something for you. And I want to say yes to everything he has for me. If there's something he wants to give me, if there's uh, something he wants to bless me with, I want to say yes to that. I want to own it. I want it to I want to participate in it, you know. And that was the realization slowly and surely that there there were misconceptions I had as Protestants. There there was there was things I had wrong. But by and large, I feel like I still have hold of all of the good things I had as a Protestant, but now they're amplified. Now they're set on fire. Um, Like my wife and I talked about our confirmation and looking back on it, like in the moment, it felt like, like, okay, that was beautiful. I don't feel any different. But looking back, it was like all of the things that were there just dormant in me were activated. And so it's like God has something for us in the sacraments. They're real. They're efficacious, right? And if he has it for you, don't you want it? And so that's kind of like my invitation to Protestants is what if he is in the Eucharist? What if that is the feast of the banquet of heaven? And you can have it now. Why Why would you want to remain where you are? Say, no, thanks. I'm fine here. Like you could have visible unity with the church he founded and all of the grace of the sacraments and all of this beautiful tradition that just makes you so much better. I mean, cause you're fully united to the, to the bride of Christ and in every way he intended obedience is to say yes to that. Right. And then you can have the discussion of like, you know, going through whether it's ontologically true, right. Kind of like I mentioned in the beginning, like, is this the reality? Right. But yeah, I would say that's a big focus of mine. And more than that, even just on, getting people excited about being Catholic um, in such a way that it like activates the charisms in their life. Because all of us, uh, regardless of our state, have a, have a vocation, have a thing God has called us to not just our state of like married, single, religious, whatever, but also like a particular charism, a particular task, a particular, um, I guess, mission in life. And we should all be living those out, you know? So I think a big part of, yeah, my channel's focus is trying to, you know, hold some of those conversations with Protestants, but also just trying to get Catholics to actually feast because the table is set before you. You have the feast of the lamb every Sunday. So let's feast on it and then be sent out, you know? So that's, I would say the, uh, the focus of my channel is a lot of that type of stuff to trying to get people to be so hyped about being Catholic that they can't help, but just go change the world around them. Beautiful. Um, and, to kind of piggyback off your point is that I 
I feel like I think I've heard you say this too. Is that I kind of feel sad that we are divided. That you know we have the separation between Protestants and Catholics, and <clears throat> I see the 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 community that Protestants build together, and just how how on fire and and how much love they have, and I. Mm-hmm. kind of i feel sad for the fact that they are missing out on a lot mm-hmm. of what the catholic church has to offer the richness of it because i i know so many people that are so on fire to go to bible study and learn more and dive more into it and th- there's so much more richness also when you mm-hmm. get into the church and dive into it and just all the knowledge that all the, the church right. history and all the the previous fathers were able to provide us it's beautiful and it's sad that we're separated and i want that everybody to take part and be be unified together Mm. and also it seems like i want protestants to be unified with the catholic church because if when protestants convert it seems like they have so much more (laughs) energy when it comes to sharing their faith and that's something that i think a lot of Catholics, cradle Catholics like my, myself, can learn from, you see, hmm. and Protestants do better when it comes to, I think, uh, at least from my experience, growing up, and now it's better with the, the, the parish that I'm in, but uh, mm-hmm. community building is one, uh, a big thing that I think uh, Protestant, on average, uh, their churches do a little bit better than some of the other parishes that I've been a part of. You don't need a duck. <laughs> it's okay. Um <laughs> But maybe mm-hmm. to put that off onto you, what do you think that Catholic parishes hmm. can learn from Protestants when it comes to community building or, or other avenues on how huh. uh, maybe like evangelization, uh, apologetics in that realm? What do you think? I think, you know, it kind of comes back to that prodigal son narrative. Like for me, I was the prodigal son, right? I was the the separated brethren united by baptism but you know living in this this wounded separation from the church and to come back was to get to the bottom of the pig slop and realize i am missing something integral and i need to go back i need to enter back into full visible union with the church jesus founded and that i mean you know in that story what does the father in the story do he says slaughter the slaughter the calf we're having a feast and that's what that's why protestants are so activated when they come home because they are feasting and in many ways like you know c.s lewis has this comparison that catholicism to a protestant feels like it's overgrown jungle and protestantism to a catholic feels like a sparse desert as a protestant who's become catholic it feels like coming out of a desert into a king's banquet and so you just you have this hunger that your your zeal as a committed protestant has created in you and the encounter you really did have with jesus has created in you and then you finally get to a place that can actually feed you nutrition in a way that you were malnourished before. You know, it's like St. Paul says, you've been drinking, you've been eating spiritual milk. It's time to chew on meat. I feel like I encountered meat for the first time, but the other half of that prodigal son story is that the father, the other son says, well, why don't I get a banquet? You know, like I've worked so hard. I've been here the whole time. And he says to the son, son, I am with you always. And everything I have is yours. So, so to the cradle Catholic, it's, Everything that the Protestant who converts has that activates them, it's there. It's in the church. It's in the sacraments. It's in the tradition. It's in the church fathers. It's in the saints. It's in mass every Sunday. And God is saying, everything I have is yours. So just come to the table. The banquet's prepared. Just feast on it, you know? 
And I really think, I mean, that sounds like, okay, well, what's the practical step? I don't know that there is one. I think it's really just bear your hearts before the Lord. Start praying the mass like deadly seriously, right? Like enter into it and and actively participate in the way that you're supposed to by 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 being present in the reality of the sacrifice that's happening there and uniting yourself to it, you know? Um mm-hmm. and I mean I mean there's there is so much in Catholicism. I think one of the things I've noticed just practically is that there's it's kind of the spirit of that of this the other son in that story of this hesitancy to approach the father and and ask him for the banquet you know that son says i've been working hard when do i get my banquet and and the father's like what do you mean just ask you know mm-hmm. so i think with catholics i've seen this hesitancy of like oh well i'm afraid to read the bible for myself because i don't want to get it wrong i'm afraid to start a bible study because i don't want it to go off the rails i in this in this desire to be a good catholic they've almost stopped themselves from stepping out of the boat onto the water it's like at some point you just have to put your foot out and say i'm stepping out and if i fall he'll catch me you know mm-hmm. um and if you're a faithful son and son of the church and trying to be faithful to the church's teaching and willing to be corrected by your priest you're not going to you're not going to fall off the rails um and and if you do someone will let you know um mm-hmm. probably in the comment section <laughs> but um but you know what i mean like i think there's like yeah. like protestants kind of just have this like oh well we'll just go try it and catholics there's sort of a reservation and and we really need to meet in the middle there like protestants probably need a lot more reservation to not just go try everything and catholics need a little more of that hey step out of the boat step onto the water you know all of the pieces are there for every cradle catholic everyone who is a catholic to be fully launched into their personal apostolate and experience the Holy Spirit and be the most effective Catholic they've ever met, right? God wants that for all of us in whatever context and place it is for you. So I think that's it. Like, don't don't be the son who's like, well, I've been here the whole time. When's my feast? Ask God for the feast. Ask him, God, okay, I'm ready. I want it. Don't know what it is. Don't know how we're going to get there, but I want it. And you can even be annoying, you know, like there's the parable of the the widow who annoys the judge to the till the unjust judge finally gives her justice just to get her to shut up. <laughs> Maybe be that widow for a minute, I guess, if you're the cradle Catholic who wants that zeal and say, God, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it looks like, but I want that. I want that to be me. I want whatever it is, whatever the gifts, the charisms, whatever the personal apostolate, whatever my mission in life is, I want you to show me and I want you to give me the courage to say yes. And I want you to give me the nutrition I need to do it. And take him up. Just, just pray that for like a couple months and then come back in the comments of this video and let us know what happened. Cause like, <laughs> you will certainly not be the same. Um, I think it really Amen. is just that bold expectancy that a child prays with, you know, like mm-hmm. if you're in the King's court and you're the jester or you're like one of the nobles, you're afraid. But if you're a child, you walk right up to the King's throne and you tell him what you want. And <laughs> you know, if we give our kids good gifts, how could our father in heaven, who's not evil, but good refrain from giving us good gifts. So I, th- I think it's really just like that 30 seconds of insane courage and prayer to approach God and just start asking for it, you know? Um, Cause there's, a, there's, there are probably just as many cradle Catholics who have had successful, um, I guess, successfully lived out faith as Protestant converts. It's just like a more hyped story when someone converts. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's no different. It's really yeah. no different. Cause you might've been brought up in the Catholic church and you might not have had that personal conversion experience, right? Well, the only difference between those two people is one is more visible than the other. But what's happening interiorly is the same thing, I think. 
I do notice it now more with the blessing that is uh, the internet, because I know there's a lot of negatives, but it's always, you know, God converts something that's negative and uses it for good. Mm. And you see a lot of cradle Catholics who are now have access to so many different mm. channels out there that now they're starting to get more on fire or rediscovering their faith that is a lot of what what is happening to uh, mm. the, some of the Catholics that I, I I've talked to. Um, and yeah, that mm -hmm. was beautiful. What you just said. And I think I'm going to wrap it up with this one final question. Cause I'm very curious what it was like for you. What, how was your first confession experience? What, <laughs> how did that feel? Cause I know for me, I, I was away from the church for a while. So it kind of felt like I was coming back for the first time. Mm -hmm. And just to, and when I finally did the first confession, I don't, there was something. It's it, maybe if there's Protestants out there listening, but there's something to it. Obviously, mm -hmm. that you could just you because you're confessing it to somebody. It's out in the open. It's not locked into your brain. You're mm. putting it out there, and the priest absolves you. And there's just this weight that lifts off you. Um, mm. I don't know. Was that your experience when you first went to confession? Yeah, it was. So coming in from having never been to confession for, like before, it's did you have like a nerve roll of all the all the things? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And my wife and I did. We both had lists, and at the end of our list, we had gotten some advice just to kind of cover your bases and not have to be scrupulous afterwards. Just say, "And for a life of sins committed but forgotten," you know, like to kind of add mm -hmm. that catch all to the end, and really to try to discern the sweeping strokes of sin in my life so that I could bring those to confession and. Um, not keep the priest there for like seven days, but you know, more like 20 <laughs> minutes or whatever. Um, I think what struck me most first off was how powerful it is to just say that stuff out loud. This is like an actual human being and have them like not want to immediately get up and run. Right. Mm -hmm. But then also the, I guess the lack of grandeur and that's going to sound counterintuitive, but the lack of grandeur and the absolution of like how normal it was. It's like so nonchalant. Like, yeah, it was it was like, okay, so you did those things and here's God's mercy. Bye. And it was like, <laughs> oh, that's like, I think what it made me realize, because as a Protestant, you feel like confession is an obstacle between you and grace. And what I've realized is, no, the fact that the right of confession is the way it is, is actually a channel that makes that grace so apparent how overly abundantly merciful God is, because you approach confession with the the dirtiest thing ever and the response is just mercy every time so like it really makes that so apparent in a visceral way that humans can understand because i was expecting it to be like this thing and you know this sermon on sin and like how wretched it was and how much penance i have to do and like this like momentous thing and it was just you know by the mercy of church i absolve you and you know, your sins are forgiven go in peace i'm like that was it i just told you <laughs> everything wrong i've ever done and you just said go in peace and mm -hmm. he said it like it might as well have been the McDonald's person say anything else, 1550 at the window, you know? <laughs> and like, that sounds like, oh, would that really be impactful? But it really is because mm -hmm. it, it made me realize that, oh, this doesn't make the mercy of God inaccessible. It makes it more accessible to my humanity. He knows what I need. He knows that by guaranteeing that, like, if you go to confession, it is absolved. Like, you don't have to think about it. Because as a Protestant, you're like, was I really sorry enough? Does he really think about it? And like, I don't know. Now it's like, it doesn't matter. Even if you had imperfect contrition, good to go. Fret not. Go in peace, right? And like that that go in peace is more real in this way than it, than it ever had been before. Um, the other thing 
is just the fact that I had to think about it for a long time. And even every time I go to confession, you do an examination of conscience. I've never taken sin so seriously in my life. Because like Protestants, we took sin seriously. But my personal sins and my, my struggle with them, my wrestle with them, I've never taken it so seriously as when I became Catholic. Um, and not in like the Catholic guilt way that I think people think on the outside that it's like, oh, you must just feel so guilty and horrible. No, I feel as responsible as I actually am, but more hopeful than ever that I have the tools to eventually no longer succumb to the same sins, you know, even if it means going over and over and over and over again for years for the same thing. Like I've seen, I've seen myself let go of things just by, I make confession like a grocery store thing. I go every two weeks, make it like a, like a, you know, a normal appointment. And man, yeah, it's, it's actually, I mean, I think the Eucharist being the source and summit is, is everyone's favorite sacrament, but like of the others, confession is probably like my favorite thing about being Catholic. Like I kind of get excited to go to confession, which might seem weird, but I'm like, let's nah, go. Cause this I is the you. thing, you know, this is like the place to just let it out and get rid of it. And just, yeah. So it's really powerful. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. And I think we're just going to end it on there because I'm just, that could probably go for ages, but uh, I try, I'm trying to keep these uh, not too crazy long, maybe in the future. Sure. You know, but um, yeah, thank you, uh, Drew, for being here. Is there anything else you want to shout out before we wrap this up? Your YouTube channel, what you have coming up, all that stuff. stuff. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, just first off, I mean, thanks, Adam, for having me on. It's been a pleasure just kind of talking about this stuff. Um, you can find me uh, over on YouTube at Drew the Catholic. I'm trying to think. I don't have any, like, firm plans for content. I kind of just, <laughs> I'm, like, way too spontaneous <laughs> with my stuff. But um, recently, I uh, went to Steubenville and uh, helped a lot of other people. So you'll probably see me in a lot of other places um, than my own channel in the coming weeks. But um, I, uh, yeah, I did some interviews with Kyle Whittington and stuff. I did, did go over the most recent document that came out of the Vatican, read the whole thing live. So if you guys are curious about that, that was interesting to do live, just like read through the whole thing and like examine it that way instead of, you know, paying attention to headlines or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, besides that, I don't know. I, yeah, I do interviews with people who are Protestant interview with people who have converted other interesting people. And, uh, Oh, this is interesting. I guess weekly, I'm doing a show with uh, Dom Dalmaso from the Logos Project called The Dom and Drew Show. And we're just reading Vatican II documents because, you know, there's some people, people have a variety of opinions on Vatican II. And we've just discovered far too many people have strong opinions one way or the other, but haven't read the documents. So it's like, let's just read them. So we're mm -hmm. literally just reading them and reflecting on them. Uh, we do one episode a week, bounce between our channels. So if you head over to my channel, you'll see the playlist with all those and that's probably the most current thing that we're doing so i gotta check that out uh, yeah it's fun <laughs> yeah well i look forward to uh, listening to that and all the uh, all the other stuff uh interviews that you've done in the past because cool. they're really well done um thanks but uh yeah so i think we'll wrap it up here thanks again and uh bye hey guys thank you for watching this video i hope you guys enjoyed this interview i always enjoyed all the interviews that i do if you are new to this channel or this podcast please subscribe to the podcast or the youtube channel whichever way you're watching it if you are on podcast platforms listen up 
listen, I would like you to subscribe, obviously, and then leave the podcast a five-star review, whether you are on Spotify or whether you are on Apple Podcasts. That helps the podcast grow. And as always, just share this podcast with your friends and family. Also, share this YouTube video if you just want to share the YouTube video as well. If you're here on YouTube, that is the best way we can grow this community as a whole. And go to adambuckingham.locals.com if you want to join the community and also support the podcast. So hopefully we can do bigger and better things and have bigger and better interviews. And I can interact with all of you all on a one-to-one basis. So go do that. And until next time, I hope you have a blessed week. Bye.